Life happens with Pinelo Mutine. Pinelo Mutine on SAFM. On SAFM. Good afternoon. It's seven minutes after one o'clock. This is Life Happens on SAFM. My name is Pimelo Motene. Let's kickstart the conversation with my guest, Kira Naidu, who is a local historian as, a, as well as a writer. He's the author of a book called Indian Africans and Made in Chatsworth. Kiri, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Pimelo. Delight to be with you on air. It's it's really, um, I think it's wonderful to celebrate. I think it's 160 years. Um, just help us maybe uh, correct that date. Is it correct that, was it 160 years exactly? Or, or is there a date previous to the 160 years that we celebrate of the arrivals of, of the Indians in South Africa? Well, the first Indian indentured workers landed in Durban on the 16th of November, 1860. Okay. But the Indian presence in South Africa goes back to the uh, days of slavery in the 17th century, mm-hmm. and even a millennium earlier where there's an argument that there were Dravidian gold miners from the southern part of India. Mm-hmm. Where so it's a long history that... Um, one has been engaged with here. Can we start there, perhaps? Because I think that's a less known history of the Indians that came, as you said, about a century before that. Um, and, and who were, did you say they were here to come for gold? Well, yes. Uh, it's quite a fascinating history, that. And uh, the person who advanced this theory mm. is a professor, Cyril Romnick, who mm. used to be an academic at the University of Cape Town. And he looked at the Indo-Africans and kind of the roots of the Indo-African presence in Southern Africa. Now, something we all know is that gold is a very much part of various cultural aspects of the Indian persona. Mm. There's gold in jewelry, there's gold in artifacts, there's gold in places of worship. So there's something almost spiritual and holy about this precious mineral. Mm. So it's natural that people from India would have scoured the globe looking for sources of gold. And what Cyril Romnick did was that he followed archaeological evidence and found much of it circumstantial, but when he pieces the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together, Mm. it's a very convincing line of argument. Mm. For instance, the the place we know as Komati Puert, Mm -hmm. the word Komati or pronounced more uh, clearly in the southern Indian languages, Kormati, mm-hmm. he argues comes from the language of Tamil. Mm. So he, he's pieced together what's a very interesting and fascinating history. And I think that there's a convincing line of argument there. Let, can we look at the history of the Indians and their relationship to gold? Yes, indeed. Uh, well, There's um, a belief that when you offer gold, especially to the goddesses, Mm. that this is something that brings you good fortune. Mm. And when one looks around within Indian communities, particularly on the subcontinent of Asia, you find that even when somebody is really dreadfully poor, they would have gold earrings or gold nose rings or Mm. some item of jewelry Mm. which would constitute their savings. 
So if your child got ill and you wanted to make, get them to a hospital in a hurry mm-hmm. and you didn't have money, you removed your earrings and offered that as payment. Mm-hmm. So this idea of gold being not just a precious met- metal, but also something that has spiritual, religious, and other significance is something, I think, in many ways coded in the Indian genetic makeup. Mm. And and maybe when we look at this archaeological theory, is that they, they possibly came here also in searching for more gold? Is that possibly where, where the story was going? Yes, that's the idea. Uh, Professor Romnick argues that these were Dravidian gold miners. Mm. Dravidian refers to the people of the deep southern part of India. Mm and that these were seafaring people, that they had mapped so many parts of the globe uh, going back uh, two millennia, and that they became aware of um, gold on the African continent. And if we keep in mind, uh, great kingdoms like the Ashante in Ghana, uh, various parts of in, in Mali kingdoms there, the great Malian kingdoms, were all trading in gold, and gold was an essential part of how they demonstrated their wealth, of how they beautified themselves with jewelry and and so on. So uh, the fact of that information having got across to Asia is something quite plausible. And so when they were able to uh, catch the winds from the southern part of India, landing in what was um, what is today present-day Maputo. Mm-hmm. They crossed over from there, and um, there's an argument that those early travelers to southern Africa from India mm. brought many words that are now infused into our languages. Mm. Words like karu, yes. which has oh. a meaning in, in the Tamil, pronounced the same way. That's interesting. Um, the, the word for gold is sona. Yes. And, and that could also be something that links to um, Zimbabwe, where we, we have even the Shona people <laughs> as people that maybe the, the Indians borrowed it from the Shona people and yes. took it back to their country, or they brought yes. words like that here. A dish that is very precious to us in, in Guazulu Natal, especially, is putu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, like that. and that's a Tamil. Uh, in, if you go to southern India, yes. people call it puttu. They, yes. Maybe the pronunciation is different from the way we do it yes. in in uh, in KZN. Yes. But it's cooked the same way. It looks the same way. It tastes the same way. And people mix it with amasi. People wow. mix it with sugar. People mix it with curry. So there's all those kinds of cultural connections that may be argued to be traced back. They were interchangeable. They were, you know, it does. You know, one would argue it doesn't really matter where they came from, but there was some some connectivity there. When you look at the the, as you said, you know, culinary exchanges and and cultural exchanges and so on. Well, the best source of anything to demonstrate relationships between people among people is in food, Mm. because we might change our names, we might change our faiths Mm. and our habits and lifestyles. But the one thing that remains constant across generations are some of our food habits. Mm. I was in southern India, and there was a restaurant that was named Ugodla. And I I asked uh, the driver of the taxi, what is that? And he said, oh, can't you see? That's a restaurant that serves food. And I said, but where does the name come from? And he said, well, that's the word in the local language. What? Unbelievable. 
So, Kiri, do, do we know if many settled in South Africa, those particular Indians that, I mean, obviously we are now theorizing here, it's an archaeological theory. Do we know if, if many settled or they, they were just perhaps traveling through as they were traveling towards other, you know, they were obviously um, uh, traveling the world, right? So I don't know if, do we know if any settled in, in the southern tip of Africa? Well, if you follow the uh, the Khoisan history, which was one of your your earlier episodes, yes. people like Zenzile Khoisan yes. make the argument that there was contact between yes. their peoples yeah. and the, the South Asians that go back to this period. Yes. And they demonstrated from shamanistic practices, mm. their forms of worship, mm. uh, the way they arranged their temples, mm. The, the trances into which they got, all of that tries to make that, that contact. Mm. And th- there has to have been some kind of uh, kind of genetic sharing. Mm-hmm. So I, I would, for one, following uh, Professor Romnick's theory, argue that a very significant contribution to the gene pool in Southern Africa came from India. And this can be traced back uh, over several millennia. Hmm. What can we, you know, how do we then decide whether, I imagine these were free people. These were not slaves at the time, correct? Well, these would be seafaring people, merchants, um, kind of uh, people pioneering, looking for new lands, not necessarily to colonize, because Mm. that's something else. You know, when when colonialism took place, it came by the force of the gun. Mm. But when the Chinese and Indians and so on traveled to different parts of the world, they seem to have come with the interest of exchanging goods and services with different people. Yeah. We don't have any record of violent conflict mm. between those travelers from particularly India and China, mm. whereas those that came from Spain and Portugal and Britain and elsewhere left a really violent record on our continent. We're going to jump ahead into another century now where they arrive under very different circumstances. And I open up the lines now on 011-714-2006 as well as your WhatsApp notes on 0614-104-107 looking at the history of the Indian population in South Africa. Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. Good afternoon, Pimelo. Speaking of the Indian community in South Africa, um, I really applaud the, 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 their citizen status in our country. And uh, if it, according to me, I would, I would date an Indian lady. So it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Even to go to India, I will try to go there. It's, it's, it's wonderful. South Africa is, it's having a beautiful relationship with the Indians. Thank you. Mpilon in Bushpark Ridge. Uh, good day, Sis Pimelo, and to the listeners of SAF. Uh, thank you for a great topic that you're having there. But I just wanted to add my two points to the story. Um, I think um, the, the, the Indians had, had a lot of uh, trading to do with uh, the, the kingdom of uh, Zimbabwe, which is uh, now a ruined kingdom of the great Zimbabwe. 
because there's a lot of archaeological evidence that is uh, found at the uh, human uh, human and science museum that is uh, in Harare. So there's a lot of trade that uh, the Indians and uh, the Shona people had, in, including textiles, uh, spices, and, and 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 all that. So there's a long, a, a very very. I think the the Indians got here during the 9 AD or 10 AD. Thank you. Thank you so much for all your comments as well as your voice notes. Uh, Kieran Idu is the local historian. Uh, he's a writer, he's an author of a book called Indian Africans and another one called Made in Chesworth. He joins us now on the line and uh, we do welcome your voice notes as well as calls and the calls can be on 011-714-2006. Kiru, let's then talk, we are now fast forwarding about a century or so later to the 1800s where then the, 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 the Indian community arrived under very different circumstances. Take us through that particular era. Yes, it was the circumstances of indenture. Mm. Now, indenture as a labor process came about in the British Empire in particular after slavery was outlawed in that empire in 1834. Mm. So what they simply did was to replace slaves by bonded workers of another sort. Mm. But if you compare slavery and, in, and indenture, mm. it is very similar processes. Mm. They preferred physical labor over mechanization. Mm. It was hugely oppressive. Mm. People were not uh, free to move where they wanted. You were confined to sugar plantations like my ancestors were. Mm. There was massive violence against people, mm. floggings, uh, even murders of indentured workers mm. and for women in particular they bore the brunt of this the massive sexual violence that was meted out against in, indentured workers mm. so this is a really ugly history of that period in the 1860s mm. and indenture uh, was a process to south africa between 1860 and 1911 mm -hmm. but indentured workers from india were taken all over the world mm. i have cousins in in Jamaica and in Guyana and in Mauritius. Fiji and yeah. in Reunion and Mauritius and elsewhere. Mm. So it was a global process of forced labor migration of various sorts. Mm -hmm. Some people argue that the migration was um, voluntary. But if you look at the circumstances, like in African societies where the British in our part of the world dispossessed people of their land mm. and um, destroyed African kingdoms, they did the very same thing in India, forcing mm. people off the land. Mm. And we make these comparisons between African migrant labor mm. and Indian indenture. And, and very much this. And, and, and there, there are many people who, who have actually proven that some of the, the, the people were kidnapped, you know, in, in India and were, you know, it was not of their, of their own will, even though there was a so-called agreement and contract in place, but it was not of their free will. Indeed. I mean, I'm glad you make that point because the kidnappings also have a much earlier history mm. where children were kidnapped off the beaches mm. everywhere from Bengal to the Coromandel coast where Madras or Chennai is presently and the Kerala coast or the Malabar coast mm -hmm. and just taken on board of ships uh, mainly by the Dutch. But mm. there were other people involved in this and they were sold into slavery, mm. many of whom were brought to the Cape 
So in the 1600s, the genealogist um, Anna Busakin Mm -hmm. argued that over 50% of the Cape slaves were of Indian origin. (laughs) A name, for instance, that's very common in the Western Cape is Cupido. Mm -hmm. The original Cupido was a slave kidnapped from the Malabar coast and taken to the Cape. And he was actually broken on the wheel Mm -hmm. because he threatened his mistress with a knife, his Mm -hmm. slave mistress, Mm -hmm. because he was just so um, in in such desperation over his his slavehood Mm -hmm. that he he, that was his act of resistance and they murdered him for it. Mm -hmm. But that name Cupido is still very common in the Western Cape and it originates in what's the modern day state of Kerala in southern India. Can we just take calls, if you don't mind, Kiru? Uh, let's go to Mike in Durban. Mike, good afternoon. Thanks for calling. Good afternoon. I'm a 1940 model, and I've grown up with the Indian community here, mm-hmm. especially the fishermen. Yes. Right. I'm quite well read. I researched the whole of Africa, and then while doing the Ice Age, went into India. Now, in about 215 BC mm-hmm. in the northwest of India, alongside the Pakistanis mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. there were Kushkan and Zulu kings, spelled Z U L U. Yes. That's over 2,000 years ago. Yes. That's how the Zulu word might have got to Africa. <laughs> then, in about 200 AD, mm-hmm. it's recorded that. Uh, Indians sailed their boats up the Red Sea and were trading with the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right, now I'll jump to the 1700s. A blacksmith uh, operating on an island in St. Lucia near the beach found a woman wandering around the beach. It was an Indian woman and eventually found out that she'd come off a shipwreck. She was the only person around. he gave her shelter, eventually uh, had children from her. Then the, the, the Portuguese were wrecking, wrecking ships off the wild coast, and they were walking up to Lorenzo Marks. They came across a young Indian boy sitting, sitting at a, a hut down there where Amtulumi area is. Hmm. And... They found out that he'd come off the shipwreck, and they said, well, come with us. And he big smile, he said, no, I'm staying here. <laughs> he was holding the hand of a little Zulu princess. <laughs> right. So now I've got, a, I've got a thesis here done by a, a woman in Durban on tourism, mm-hmm. and she records in here five Indian males disembarking off the ship mm-hmm. in in 1855 in Durban. Mm-hmm. The one was a Babu Nadu and the other one was a Cheki. Mm-hmm. The other three names I don't have. Mm-hmm. And they opened shops in West Street mm-hmm. on opposite corners of Western Field Street. Mm. Mike. But, uh, that's, that's, that's a little bit of history I'm Th- giving you. That By is, the way, yes. there were a lot of Indians, about 2,000, working on the coal mines in northern Natal. Mm-hmm. That is. Thank you so much for that contribution there, Mike. Akira, that's another another batch of of of, of Indians that followed the indenture laborers. Laborers, am I correct? Where they they were um, themselves tradesmen, they were professionals, and so on. That that follows that particular era, correct? 
Well, very valuable information from Mike mm. there. I mean, the one he refers to with Babu Naidu and yes, so on, yes. they came from Mauritius mm-hmm. because the British colonial planters in Natal were then experimenting with sugarcane. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to bring that crop here because these were the early years before the destruction of the Zulu kingdom mm. um, in 1879, 1880. Mm. So these planters, Edmund Morwood, Ephraim Rathbone and so on, Mm. brought people like Babu Naidu Mm. from Mauritius Mm. because Indians have been indentured in Mauritius since 1834. Mm -hmm. So they first came to South Africa in 1860 as indentured, but were there much earlier. Mm. And there were all these small migrations, a handful of people brought even before 1860. Mm. And that group to which he refers um, comes from that number. I'm fascinated by that picture mm. to which he refers because I mm. haven't seen it and wow. I've been trying to piece together Babu Naidu's Yes. yes. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll probably uh, try and see if we can't connect you there with him so that you can maybe exchange some notes. Kiri, let's just take a, a quick break with um, Utsila Saku for the very latest in headlines and we'll come back with more of your questions and calls on 011 714 Life happens with Pinelo Mudine. We're in conversation with Kiru Naidi. We're looking at the history of the Indian community in South Africa. We've gone way, way back and we are at a point where we were discussing the arrival of indentured laborers in South Africa. And particularly, um, Kiru, let's just help us through the the environment in South Africa. What did they find when they got here? I mean, they arrived here. They were promised all sorts of, you know, a better life, even though, yes, they were... In, in, in inverted commas, enslaved, but they were promised a better life. What did they find when they get you? Well, they were disappointed because it didn't match what they were promised. There was this indentious system had recruiters all over India going to villages and especially looking for people who were really desperate and trying to entice them in, into this system. There were, of course, other people who were drugged and taken on board of ships. There were people kidnapped and and so on. But by and large, people contracted through these agents. Now, it's a very interesting word for these agents. They were called Arkatias. And in my local parlance in in Chatsworth, if we refer to somebody as an Arkat person, Mm. it means that this is really dreadful, horrible people. Mm. And and that comes from that indentured history because the people that deceived them into the slavery of the plantations and the mines mm. were these people. And they called it in, in, in the it's a language that's uh, not very commonly used in our country because it uh, has derogatory reference. Mm-hmm. But they spoke about it as a coolie catching system. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the idea that you went around snaring people hmm. into indenture. Hmm. And and they were, caught, I mean, they were told that th- this would be, what, a five-year contract. Did some actually leave after the five years? Yes, uh, about 46% of the people that came uh, repatriated to their original homeland. Hmm. So between 1860 and 1911, uh, there, there were 152,184 people that were indentured. So it was an initial five-year contract, and after serving two contracts of up to 10 years, mm. you were promised a free passage 
back home. And uh, and many people. Oh well, I'm sorry. Let me correct myself on that. You could you could return to India, mm-hmm. but there was also an initial offer that after the ten years, mm. you could get a patch of land mm. in lieu of the return passage. Mm. And the majority of people opted to stay, but that promise of land was not honoured. Mm. In fact, there were only something like fifty pieces of land on the KZN South Coast that was given to people in lieu of the return passage. Mm. The people, after the, the term of indenture, remained. They got into, as one of your callers said, into fishing, mm-hmm. into market gardening, mm. and all those little petty trades mm. uh, that has become such an important part, especially of the KZN economy. Mm. Ronnie, you're calling from KZN. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Pamela, and good afternoon to your guests and the listeners. Mm, I just want to comment, and I'm not sure whether Thiru um, is aware of this. Uh, with regards to Cyril Ongwek's suggestion that the Indian miners and the Indonesian employees, mm-hmm. they cohabited with the local population and thereby not only fathered the people known as the Quenas and the Hottentots and the Khoihoi, mm-hmm. but also left genetic traces in much of this country, mm. present population. Mm. I would like him to just respond to it, if he's aware of it, because it is published uh, in the Mail and Guardian in 1997 mm. with regards to Cyril Omnic's, uh theory. Mm. Thank you, Pamela. I'll listen to the radio. Thank you, Ronnie. Kiru, I think you, the, the request is for you to expand a bit more on that one. Yes, um, it, it's very valuable information, and I'm glad that Ronnie has shared that. I've been very careful in how we've used that information, mm-hmm. because it's very easy to become chauvinistic mm-hmm. when we are speaking about heritage and identity. Mm-hmm. And I would rather take the view, and I'm not disputing the yes. historical evidence and exactly what he said is in the literature, and people like Zenzile Khoisan have argued exactly that same point, mm-hmm. and they've presented the evidence for it. But whenever we talk about issues of race, ethnicity, identity, and so on, mm. my own view, and those are my, the co-authors in this book we've just done called The Indian Africans, mm-hmm. rather take the view that as a global community, we've always been migrating, we've always been exchanging ideas and trading with each other and sharing our vast cultures Mm. and cuisines and dress and all of that. Mm. So this idea that maybe uh, there's a dominant influence Mm. coming from outside of the continent, Mm. in some ways it's it's a dangerous line of argument. Mm. But it's very interesting if we take this perspective that, for instance, the Juba people of southern Sudan are the genetic pool for Zulu people in KZN. Um, but but the, you know, the, the Juba there don't claim mm-hmm. to have contributed this, uh, the, this large part of the genetic material of, uh, of, of the Zulu people. Mm-hmm. But it's the idea that throughout human history, we've always been sharing, integrating with each other, and if that uh, proves itself, um, as Ronnie says, um, to be 
factual beyond just the the evidence that uh, Romnick has uh, presented, I think it would be fascinating because <laughs> it shows that there's more that unites us than divides us. What an elegant response. I really love that. I love how you responded to that, Kiru. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with your call, Cyril, and I see many of your other calls. I'll take them after this. Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. Good afternoon, SAFM. Lovely topic about the Indian indenture. Uh, in other words, Indian slave. Uh, my grandfather's family was hoaxed into coming to South Africa and uh, my grandfather uh, was a stowaway aboard the, uh, on board the ship called the Amlazi. So they were treated very, very badly when they came to South Africa. And uh, uh, because of the bad treatment, my father actually uh, was beginning to hate the white man for the crimes and atrocities caused against my uh, grandparents. So I would like to ask the the uh, the 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 guy that's uh, talking on the show whether if he's got any pictures of the Amlazi and the Amzinta ships. There were African ships, African named ships called the Amlazi and the Amzinta. Whether if he's got pictures, to please contact Ian Naidu on zero seven four. Six six zero four four two six. Thanks. Great show. So we we obviously are not allowed to publish anybody's telephone numbers. That's what uh, we were discussing here in the background. So we will make sure that he gets your your contact details uh, offline. Kiru Amlazi ships. Do you do you can you recollect any of those ships that he's talking about? Yes, indeed. Um, there were three hundred and eighty four ships <laughs> that did this route between Calcutta, Madras and Durban between 1860 and 1911. There was the Umlazi, there was the Mfloti, uh, there was the Umona, a, a huge variety of ships. And the, the British owners of these ships gave them local names, and yes. largely local Zulu names. Yes. Uh, what would fascinate um, Ian here is in this book that we've done now with... Um, Paul David, Ranjit Chunilal, and Selvan Naidu, we published for the very first time pictures from on board the indenture ships. These have never mm. seen, been seen before. Mm. We managed to unearth the diaries mm. of one of the captains of the indenture ships, mm-hmm. a man called Captain Max de Gruta. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating the way he kept pictures and records, and he had a real empathy for the people that he was transporting. Was so he a he British captain? Them. Well, he, he was a, a, a British captain. He was yep. a naturalized British citizen or subject. Okay. But he was originally from Holland. Okay. And his grandson shared these diaries and these images with us. So we're really fascinated that we can actually show a picture of people sandwiched on the deck of mm. an indenture ship in these circumstances that Ian talks about, mm. and we have pictures from the SS Mzinto as well. Uh, can, we, can we date those? Well, with Captain de Gruta's pictures, yes. we've dated them from the 1890s until 1907. Uh, <laughs> many of the pictures are from the 1903 voyages of the SS Umona. Mm. So we're really grateful that this family has just been so generous in sharing this information and their grandfather's diaries. It's the only account, Mm. as far as we are aware, 
where the actual detail of what happened on board is recorded in this beautiful, empathetic way, mm. also very poetic in the way he worded it, waking up the women at 5 a.m., mm. Uh, to give them ghee and flour so that they could roll the chapatis on board. This mm-hmm. is this Indian flatbread. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those elements. So they were not just cargo, human cargo that were being transported. Mm-hmm. The Gruter gave them a human face mm-hmm. and recorded their bathing rituals, their prayer rituals, mm-hmm. their marriages on board, mm-hmm. the births on board. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just technical data, but it gives us the rich history and I'm very pleased that we've been oh. able to gather all of this in the book that we've presented oh, this is wonderful. Uh, as a tribute on the 160th anniversary. Lovely, lovely. Cyril, you're calling from Kokstad High. Yes, yes, ma'am. <laughs> very interesting topic, yeah. Yes. Uh, you'll hear me talking about Khoisan, but I'm, I'm a Greek <laughs> calling under the Khoisan group. Yes. But what has happened from my paternal side? Yes. Hello? Yes, yes, we're here. From my paternal side, my surname is Gangadine. Mm-hmm. G-A-N-G-E-R-G-I-N-E. Mm-hmm. Now, I have done, tried to do some research on my family to from my paternal side. I can only go as far as my grandfather, which I trace in the Catholic Church. His baptism certificate shows that he was born in Calcutta. Now, it appears that uh, some of the researches are not touching on all over. In his Greek land, we find the Greek one. We can get a platform to describe this Greek or what the Greek is, you will see how many people are included under the Greek white, uh, Indian, black, and Khoisans, and so on. But I would like to be in contact with the guy mm. to see whether we can trace my, my grandfather, because uh-huh. it appears when the Indians came to his Greek land, they weren't allowed there. It means either they changed their surname mm-hmm. or they actually had married uh, to a Greek Mm-hmm. Because I'm, I'm, I'm a good Indian roots, mm-hmm. I got French roots, mm-hmm. and I got Khoisan roots. Mm-hmm. Now, this is very, very interesting. But I think the land issue, I was very disappointed last week, quickly, that I wasn't brought in. But I will uh, 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 email you on your show, because I was on Katie's show, just to bring this land issue and, and, and so that I can uh, share my research All right, and the so corruption in the landline. No, we'll, we'll definitely touch on that at some other time, Cyril. There. Thank you very much. Kirill, let's talk about the professionals, the tradesmen, the those came in at another time who paid their way to coming into South Africa and subsequently actually became somewhat of a threat to the settlers in, in South Africa. Yes, correctly so. Well, from about the 1870s, there were a group of people who were called passenger Indians Mm -hmm. because they paid for their passage. And when they got here, they started up various enterprises, and it wasn't just petty trading. Mm. They developed huge businesses, Mm. even owning ships, Mm. because they had an entire network, the traders who came mainly from the state of Gujarat. Mm -hmm. They have a long history of trading all over the world. Mm -hmm. So they had resources, they had various means, they had ideas, Mm -hmm. and and they came to be a significant part of the political economy Mm -hmm. of then colonial Natal. Mm -hmm. But in the process, they became immense competition for the white colonial traders. Mm -hmm. And so you had the early years of racial legislation in the forms of bylaws and uh, laws passed by even the Natal legislature to curb the business activities of the Indian 
community. Mm. So this is by no means a homogenous community. Sure. And we write, for instance, that there is a historic tension between the people who were the indentured class on the plantations and mm. on the mines mm-hmm. and the trader community. Mm. And that class divide may have dissipated in great part over the past 160 years, mm. but it's a very distinct line. So when we write uh, various stories related to indenture, Mm. we privilege that particular history Mm. of the people of the plantations. Mm. There's much less written about the passenger Indians, but they have the resources to be able to document their history. But the people who were on the plantations and in the mines did not have that privilege, were rarely able to read and Mm. write in the kind of Western sense. Mm. Although many of them came highly educated Mm. in their Indian languages. There were people who were traditional doctors Mm. in their home country. People were engineers and so on, but got lumped into this category. I don't like the sound of indentured laborers, preferring rather to talk about people as workers. And this was Mm. the workers who contributed along with all other communities to building our country. And and in fact, people say though, those are the people who changed, I suppose, even alongside the passenger Indians who've changed this green economy into a gold economy. Yes, it, it, it's a wonderful uh, metaphor to use. Mm. But here again, we must avoid being chauvinistic about it mm. because no single com- community can be credited with uh, creating the kind of economic powerhouse we have either in KwaZulu-Natal or in South Africa at large. Mm. It was the labors of all the people who pulled together. I mean, if we look at the African migrant labor system, for instance, Mm -hmm. that was devastating. Mm. That broke down entire societies, destroyed the African family, in the same way that indenture destroyed the Indian family. Mm. And one of the chapters that we write is about the struggle to form a family. You could have come on board a ship with your wife and children, and when you landed in the harbor, they split up the wife and children Mm. on different plantations. Mm. And there were people who sometimes never saw each other again. Mm -hmm. So all of these are part of a really ugly history. But indeed, everybody worked to create the kind of country that we have and a powerful economy that we have on the continent today. Let's take a quick break. Kiru Naidu is the author of Indian Africans and as well as an author of Made in Chatsworth. He's a local historian as as well as a writer. And we're looking at the history of Indians in South Africa. At SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. Kira Naidu is the author of Indian Africans as well as Made in Chatsworth. Those are really fantastic books. If you're looking for gifts for this Christmas season, I would definitely suggest that you get the, uh, uh, copies of these books. They really are wonderful. Kira, let's let's talk about what then became quite a difficult environment for Indians in South Africa, particularly in, 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 in um, KZN, and, and really what became an uprising of a community that, um, you know, saw the likes of uh, really prominent lawyers and so on become uh, human rights uh, fighters at the time. Yes, I think there's a very powerful record of people from within the Indian community as having engaged in the anti-colonial and anti-apartheid struggles. Mm. Uh, For instance, the the more dominant name that we have when we record this history 
is that of M.K. Gandhi, who came here as a lawyer and that founded the Natal Indian Congress, which emerged as the first mass-based political movement on our continent, because before this we had elite formations and, and we're not looking on a mass base as we, we organize today. Mm. But right from that time, going back to the later 1800s, people like Tambi Naidu in uh, Johannesburg and generations of that family, Indres Naidu was on Robben Island, Shanti Naidu uh, imprisoned in the 1960s, and she very famously uh, refused to give evidence against Winnie Mandela in 1969 and mm. uh, endured uh, severe torture for that. Her story is told very well in Women in Solitary, mm. uh, which is published, uh, written by my namesake, Shantani Naidu, but mm. a, f- a fascinating work looking at the resistance history. Mm. And I think that this was a direct response to racism, institutionalized racism, mm. legislated racism, mm. and people stood up and fought. So this misnomer that Indian people are fixated with passive resistance gets thrown out the door when you look at the profound acts of resistance. Mm. And in 1913 in particular, 50,000 workers on the cane fields and mines in the then Natal came out in strike and brought the economy to a standstill. Mm. And President Oliver Tambo, in a speech, referred to the first general strike in South Africa. So it's a profound history of activism that the community of Indian origin needs to be proud of. Mm-hmm. In, an, uh, in Daba, I think it's, it's in Daba. In Daba, you're calling us from uh, Centurion. Good afternoon. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for calling Daba. Okay. Um, I just want to... To, to add, um, uh, I, I had um, uh, the gentleman uh, you are talking to saying uh, the people of Sudan, uh, the Juba people of, uh, of, of Sudan, they could a gym pool for uh, that is uh, part of the, the Zulu people. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, go ahead, Ndaba, we're listening. Yeah, um, what I want to say is that uh, um, I've heard in, a, in um, what do you call in uh, in uh, many occasions, uh, people are making uh, that mistake of uh, uh, singling out the Zulu because uh, um, the Zulu, as a, as a Zulu nation right now, they were not a, a Zulu nation before. And if you uh, uh, like, if we are saying they are part of the people from Sudan, that means uh, the, the Nguni people are the ones who are part of. Uh, uh, the, the people of Sudan, the Chuba people, of which uh, the Zulus, the Kotas, the Mashubi, the Ndewele, the Swati, uh, they fall under uh, this kind of people, uh, the Nguni people. That's what I wanted to say. All right. Thanks very much for that, Ndaba, the instant you're in. I think that's the point you were making, Kiri, to say that we must be very wary of the kind of arrogance that comes through when we attribute one particular group of people um, to being the ones who are responsible for a particular nation or or a gene pool uh, um, that, that dominates the other. And, and I think that's what he's trying to say. I think it's a very powerful point. Mm. And uh, like the earlier caller from... Um, um, I think it was, it was from Griqualand uh, yeah. called. Yes, Richard, um, I think. You know, all of our Sorry. bloodlines merge from every part of this continent. And if we did one of these uh, tests, 
that they do at Wits University, mm. for instance, <laughs> we would be fascinated to find how everything comes together mm. and that we share so much. Mm. And I mean, on the African continent, people have been traversing this continent end to end, going back millennia. So there, there are no disparate elements that says you belong here or you migrated from elsewhere and, and so on. But when we look at migrations from outside the continent, the, the Indian migration under indenture is pro probably the most significant. Mm -hmm. But let us also keep in mind that there were Chinese who were also indentured to the railways. So when you travel on the railway line from, say, Soweto to, to the city, there were Chinese labor that had a hand in that, the railways around the gold mines and so on. But there were also, uh, on, on the fact of indenture, a seldom talked about fact is that there were African slaves from northern Mozambique, mm. Makua people, mm -hmm. who were also indentured in colonial Natal. Mm. Now, I grew up in the township of Chatsworth in Unit 3, and right next door in Unit 2 was this community, largely Makua and Swahili speaking, mm -hmm. that originates in northern Mozambique, uh, but were, were indentured, and then they were under the apartheid grand design they were placed with Indian people in Chatsworth because the state couldn't figure out where to put them because this group was largely Muslim and the only other Muslims were of Indian origin so they placed them in, in Chatsworth <laughs> and, and that fascinating history of their indenture going back to 1873 is another part of our entire national makeup that needs to be talked about Mm. I mean, this year's celebrations were quite different, Kiru. And, and how do you reflect so many years later? And I know the date that we keep looking at is celebrating 160 years um, of, of the Indian community arriving in South Africa. How do you reflect upon that now when, when we are sitting in 2020? We reflect on it with great pride. Mm. But it's also a reflection. It's a questioning it's looking to restore not just the dignity of people of Indian origin were enslaved and indentured, but it's a restoration of the entire South African psyche. Everybody was wounded by these processes of colonialism and apartheid. And we have to see this history in its totality. I'm just fixated on this call from um, the Griqualand and Gangardin. Yes, I think it's Cyril, yes. Yes. Cyril, yes. The, the great, you know, I mean, it was uh, there's the, uh, you know, we must salute the great Adam Koch mm -hmm. in that region, and there were indentured workers who were placed in Matatiel. Mm -hmm. So the spread across the province and into what we know, Eastern Cape and so on, spread right across our country, and of course from uh, the Dennet, moved to the Cape and got absorbed into the Cape communities there, especially after the Population Registration Act, it became very difficult to be Indian in the Cape. Mm -hmm. You could only be confined mm -hmm. to Rylands if you were Indian in the Cape. Mm -hmm. But if you became colored, you could be all over the Western Cape. Mm -hmm. And so the Indian identity in the Western Cape, mm -hmm. as Professor Umar Dupilia Mestri found after 1950, the Indian identity disappears in the Western Cape. But this kind of filtering in through various 
sectors of our country is fascinating indeed. And there are so many families which claim African parentage together with Indian parentage. And those are aspects of the way we've been welded as a South African nation that should be things that we take great pride in Mm. rather than seeing ourselves as disparate Mm. elements. But having said that, we must not also be oblivious to the fact that there are deep tensions that exist in our country and that we haven't reached much as we should and can. And that must be the challenge as we mark this 160th year. And hence the title of that book, where we've been really provocative to say the Indian Africans, mm. like people speak of, of African Americans. Mm. I think we've now sort of shifted the concept to say identity is a shifting terrain. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was the activist photographer and archivist Omar Bacha, who challenged us to to look at history through African eyes. Mm -hmm. And in talking about this history of Indian indenture, we hope we've met that challenge of his. Certainly have. Kira Naidu, author of Indian Africans, as well as a book called Made in Chatsworth. Really appreciate your time. So sorry, Utile, we're just gone after two o'clock. Let's get the very latest in SABC News.